Hi everyone, it's Fiona Boyle. I am a seafarer. And this month on the Women Offshore podcast, we are talking about sexual assault and sexual harassment awareness. We are continuing the conversation around resources. Today, we have a special guest that is an emergency medicine physician who founded a medical advisory service to serve the offshore maritime industry. This is the Women Offshore podcast. Women Offshore is a 501c3 nonprofit organization supporting a diverse workforce on the water. Before we begin, I wanted to say that if you have been a victim of or a witness to sexual assault or sexual harassment, you are not alone and can take action today. You are encouraged to report such matters to your employer, academy, or union as per their guidelines. For example, this may be your HR partner, captain, or designated person ashore. It can be hard to speak up, but it is a necessary step in seeking help and breaking the cycle of sexual assault and sexual harassment. Here with us today is Dr. Ann Jarris, an emergency medicine physician based out of Seattle, Washington here in the United States. Dr. Jarris has 15 years of experience to include background in wilderness, remote, and telemedicine. Dr. Jarris and her husband, Dr. Ray Jarris, founded Discovery Health MD in October of 2016. Together, they shared a vision of improving healthcare at sea. They realized that the offshore maritime industry is an underserved community and a new approach to medical support at sea was needed. In addition to COVID-19 response and testing, Discovery Health MD has a 24-7 medical advisory service called CDOC. CDOC is designed to provide immediate access to a maritime specialized medical provider at remote and maritime work sites. CDOC emergency physicians understand the challenging dynamics that come with working offshore, such as fishing vessels, towing, cargo, petroleum, research, survey, ready reserve, and private vessels. Discovery Health MD strives to keep mariners and employees healthy, safe, and productive throughout their careers, while helping companies with comprehensive services, such as assisting with ship diversion, medical evacuation at sea, fit-for-duty programs, flag state medical chest compliance, and overall medical risk management. Welcome, Dr. Jarris, to the Women Offshore podcast. Well, thank you. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. So this month of April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, and you're one of the first people that came to mind to ask to come on for this series. And before we kick off with our specific questions, would you mind sharing your founding story of Discovery Health MD and your background? Sure. So I am an emergency medicine physician by training based out of Seattle. And I'd been practicing for about 15 years with a a long background in wilderness medicine and remote medicine and had a special interest in telemedicine when I met my husband, Dr. Ray Jarris. He was well known within the maritime industry and the maritime medical industry for decades. So when we talked about building Discovery Health MD, it really came out of my interest in remote medicine and his years and years and years of experience within the maritime industry. We really had a shared vision, and our, our question was, how can we improve healthcare at sea? We knew it was a very underserved community that we really had the potential to make a good positive impact on. Sadly, Ray passed away in 2018, but at that time, he 
he had done a really good job of imparting his vision to my team and myself. And uh, I do feel that we have stayed true to that. And it, it continues to be our North Star. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. I know we've met in the past and I've been so impressed and interested with all your knowledge and background and how much you care about the offshore community. So we're really thankful to have you today. So in regards to sexual harassment and sexual assault offshore, most companies should have a zero tolerance for SASH, which we're using the acronym to describe sexual harassment and sexual assault. But of course, you and I know that doesn't prevent it from actually happening. What resources have you found are available to seafarers at sea? Yeah, I'd say this is a really difficult topic for the entire industry, partially because it's a culture that doesn't really talk about it, partially because there are so few women in the industry. That's not to say that harassment is only against women. There certainly certainly is harassment against other gender as well. But it's difficult for companies to talk about. As, as you, know, you and I have talked about before, you guys are so overwhelmed with training and safety and just trying to you know, keep vessels moving that adding a lot of the interpersonal and workplace safety trainings and conversations is difficult to find the time. So I'm glad to hear that this conversation is happening. I'm glad to hear that companies are responding. And I, I do see it happening. I do see companies devising policies and procedures to address this. Most every company has an anti-harassment policy. You certainly can, you know, you certainly can talk to your company about that. I'm very certain they'll be able to provide one. A sexual assault policy specifically is, is probably not, most companies probably don't have that as well fleshed out. Right. So that's where I would start. If you, if you wanted to kind of ask around your company, I'd start asking about their anti-harassment policies and what resources they have in place. If you do find out that it's really kind of lacking in specifics about what to do in the event of an assault or harassment, there are a lot of good resources out there for companies. The one that I found that I like the best is the Ship Operations Cooperative Program, mm -hmm. put out a best practices guide about six or seven years ago. Really, it was a good start. It really gives companies a place to start on how to develop response, response plans to prevent and to respond to harassment and assault. Okay, well, that's good. And we'll, we'll include a link to that in the show notes. So thank you for providing that. Yeah, so policy, that's the step that I know I found in the company that I've worked for for many years, and they have that. So that'll be good to go and resource and reference those things. Now, in regards to what I found on board a ship, because we know we're underway, some vessels are, are not in port for a while, some may be out just for a few days or returning same day. For personnel, whether it's harassment, and of course we know that assault is is now crossing the line to more of a crime, but overall, the discussion that I don't think we don't talk about in general is the the brain and the response. And a lot of times there's like the fight, flight, or freeze, or just reaction to things that are happening to us as individuals generally, whether it's ashore. And when we're on a ship, I feel like the impact of trauma is just exacerbated. Can you elaborate on trauma on the brain and the impact on a person who experiences harassment or assaults or bullying or specific to sexual harassment or assault? Yeah, and it's going to be highly individual. You know, first of all, when you are on a ship out at sea, you're dealing with a whole other level of stresses that you may not be dealing with in a shore based environment. You know, as an employer, if I'm dealing with an allegation of harassment, 
there are things that I can do to separate people. There are things I can do to help kind of prevent any retaliation or anything ongoing. Mm -hmm. It's a lot more difficult to do in a shared living environment where you're out at sea for months at a time with the same people. It's just much more difficult. And my biggest concern with that is also the opportunities that you miss out on. I mean, say there's somebody that, you know, they're trying to keep two people apart and maybe one of those people is in a higher position. So suddenly the lower person now doesn't have access to educational opportunities, doesn't have access to that informal on the job training that happens. So there's all this kind of secondary loss that happens when you have to keep people separated in an environment like that. But when you talk about specifically the impacts of trauma, it's highly variable. Obviously, people, people come to the job with their own history and their own experiences and are going to respond to traumatic situations in different ways. But we do know that when people are exposed to ongoing chronic stress, that it does have very, very observable and significant impacts on function, on emotion, on executive function, on memory, cognition, your ability to perform. And even beyond that, the effects that we talked about the fight or flight response, the effect that it has on your, your home, your hormones, your hormonal axis, and how you respond to inflammation. And that can lead to a whole host of chronic diseases. So for people who are under constant stress, for people who can't escape the stress, it has significant negative impacts on their health and their well-being. And even short-term trauma has significant effects on memory, cognition, emotions, ability to function, ability to retain information. And in a highly safety conscious environment, that's problematic. If you have somebody who is having difficulty with attention and recall in a very safety sensitive position, then it puts everybody at risk. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. It's almost like its own risk assessment. (laughs) We do. It does argue why this is everybody's problem. It does argue why if you're on a ship, somebody, your, your coworkers having an impairment in their ability to function affects you. So it does argue why we all need to talk about this and we all need to be aware of it. Yeah. It's the the joint conversation impacts each other. And even if you're not a direct victim or receiving the harassment or assault personally, I know there's conversation of, of bystanders and there's other people on the ship that are most likely aware of this or observing it, or maybe not. But if if someone were to report this to someone else, a fellow seafarer on board, what can that other seafarer do to help a fellow crew member that's now confided in them that they're being impacted by this harassment or assault? What do you recommend with that? Right. You, you sort of mentioned a little bit the bystander effect when other people are around. So you sort of assume somebody else will take care of the problem. So if you become aware of an unsafe environment where somebody is being harassed or assaulted, you do have the power to do something about it. Everybody has a chain of command. Everybody has a supervisor. The key here is to not stay silent and ignore it. Mm-hmm. The recommendations I give is that if you're, you're out at sea or anywhere, you're in any work environment, in any environment, frankly, and you become aware of it, you do have a responsibility to report it confidentially to somebody that you feel is, you know, is going to manage it appropriately, whether it's your designated person ashore, whether it's, you know, a chief mate, whether it's the captain, but not doing nothing. And also it's not really your job to fix it. You know, you certainly can, you certainly can approach the person that you're concerned about asking open-ended questions in a compassionate way, but it's not your job to do this full investigation. So I think if you, if you have concerns If somebody has confided in you that they have concerns, 
your best bet is to report it in a confidential and sensitive manner to somebody higher in the chain of command that can can, can start these policies in place, that can start appropriate investigations and, and get appropriate support. That's probably the best thing that you can do if you become aware of that. Okay, great. Yeah. And from the safety perspective, or like building that safety assessment for the person that's impacted and the victim here, when we report to the chain of command, obviously, I think of, okay, this is not a drill. There's a real first aid medical issue on board that now needs to be helped. And typically, whether that's the captain of the vessel or the medical person in charge or PIC as it's known, if they're different, if the medical PIC is not the captain, those personnel would be brought in on the conversation to, to help the victim or help whoever is in medical need of response. So if there was a sexual assault on board, you know, we know we have, there's typically a hospital on board, there's first aid, there's other actual places that, that someone could be brought to for refuge and a safe haven to be taken care of. But do you have any advice for that medical PIC who obviously is not trained in the specifics of sexual assault and maybe recommendations for them of what what to do in a scenario like this? Obviously, I would probably think calling the contracted medical provider like your company, but any advice with that? Yeah. And, you know, again, I hate, I hate dealing with things on the fly that could have been dealt with beforehand. So I hate trying to address urgent and emergent problems that that could have could have procedures in place and you could educate people on it. It's it's not fair to put people under that stress when you're trying to deal with other things. So, you know, we call that swimming upstream. You know, I'd first before we even get to that, I'd first start with making sure that that the company has addressed this, has good, clear policies and procedures in place, has communicated them and educated them. So the moment that somebody becomes aware of this, they can say, I'm going to refer to the company's policy and this is what I'm supposed to do, X, Y, and Z, rather than making it up on their own. I'd like to see that happen first. So, you know, likely best practices, if you're a med pick, if you're the medical officer on board and you're responding to an alleged assault, you do have an obligation to make sure that the company is aware of this. Everything that happens on board, the company does have an obligation to appropriately investigate, appropriately document. And so somebody has to be involved. And whether that's the designated person ashore, whether that's somebody in HR, there should be somebody identified as the company contact to walk through this. Mm -hmm. You likely will be contacting your contracted medical advisory service. You know, we're not out there with you. So our job is to give advice as best we can. You are our eyes and ears and hands, but we're really reliant on what you're doing out there to give us that information. So, you know, we our, our first question is obviously stabilizing any life or limb threatening injuries and getting people to the appropriate care at the appropriate at the appropriate time. But then this becomes a highly individualized response. So, yes, certainly, you know, if you're if you're aware of this, you're going to have to notify somebody above you, you're going to have to notify the company, and then if this becomes a question of your next medical move, absolutely you should involve whoever your contracted medical advisory services. Yeah. It's, it makes me think as you're talking about like the checklist and preparation beforehand, I know the management company I've worked for in the past, there's always a binder for reference, right? And you go to that for your drills and, okay, let's pull out the checklist. And because I would think as much as we were responding to the victim who is in a traumatic situation, you know, 
we can only respond as well as we're trained. And this isn't something that like, oh, we're going to have our annual sexual assault response drill. It seems like really having a checklist in place to maybe help. Okay, step one, do this. Step two, you know, ensure safety of the victim, what have you. So really good thoughts there of maybe companies establishing that for reference for their seafarers to be able to help them through that process. Right. And at the same time, an emergency is not the time to be reading the checklist for the first time. So I do think it is reasonable to have sexual assault response drills. I I don't think that's unreasonable at all. Yeah. You guys are so overwhelmed with training (laughs) that it's, it's hard to encourage that, but it's important. So not only does it make you feel more confident and prepared to address it, I think it also makes you more likely to to speak up if you see something. So kind of bringing it out of the shadows, you know, this isn't something to to not talk about. It's not something shameful and horrible. It's just, it's the reality of life. We all have to deal with this. So if we can have an upfront discussion about what sexual harassment and assault is, how to identify it, what you should do if you identify it, and what are the procedures if you if you need to respond, I think it just takes a lot of stress off of everybody. Yeah. I mean, just talking about it through with you, it makes me less stressful thinking about it. So on a typical like medical treatment facility ashore, there's obviously we have 911 and someone can come to the response of a victim or when taken to you know a place for care, typically a sexual assault forensic exam would occur as well as there'd be specifically trained nurse examiners or forensic examiners available to help the victim through the next steps for, say, preservation of evidence or medicine post the trauma. And I think you and I have discussed this too, is that these things don't exist at sea. So kind of from your perspective, is this something that we should be discussing about putting on board? Or, you know, what's that next step post, you know, immediate response that we can further help the victim in their coordination of care? From my standpoint, this is the most difficult part to translate to see because you're right. On shore, there's a certain standard and you know it varies by region, but it became clear that having the expectation that every provider be able to do a forensic exam and do it well was not happening. So the sexual assault nurse examiner program was developed and there are specifically trained nurse examiners who do understand how to do a forensic exam. They generally have the time dedicated to do that. They are trained in trauma-informed care. They're able to more accurately gather information and more accurately maintain that chain of custody. This is actually even a problem on shore. There are not sane nurses at every hospital. I've worked in hospital systems where you would have to transfer people to other hospitals to get that done. And I mean, that's wow. trauma unto itself. Right. So, I would say that, you know, it's not that we've got a perfect program on land that we want to translate to to sea. There's a lot of work to do on land already. Right. But the problem is that doesn't exist at sea. It, it just simply doesn't. And it is not a doing a forensic exam at sea in the commercial maritime industry is not a reasonable expectation. You could not train people to that level. So at that point, it becomes a matter of evidence preservation. It becomes a matter of documenting well. And it becomes a matter of deciding when and how somebody needs to get to shore. You generally have about 72 hours after the alleged assault to collect evidence. So, you know, is this something that rises to the level of a medevac? Mm -hmm. That's a huge decision. Is this a life or limb threatening emergency that warrants risking, you know, the assets and personnel of a medevac? That's a one-on-one conversation. That's a, you know, you'll have to talk through what exactly is going on. Does it warrant diverting a ship? If you divert a ship, are you going to go to a port where those resources are available? I mean, I can think of some ports that it would be more traumatic to get off at and be left at. 
So it's a very difficult subject. Not only the forensic exam is problematic, but the medications you give for post-exposure prophylaxis, you know, for concern for any sexually transmitted disease, for concern for HIV. The recommended medication regimens oftentimes require lab work that can't be done at sea, and they oftentimes require medications that are prohibitively expensive to carry at sea, that it doesn't make sense. If you want to look at an industry that did kind of go all in on this, many of the large cruise lines do actually do this. They do train their medical staff to do forensic exams. They do carry more medications, but they have a lot more resources at sea than really any commercial boat. Yeah, definitely. Those are the things we're thinking about. Those are the decisions we're trying to make is, you know, what's the stability of the person? Is there, is there a medical or traumatic reason that necessitates a medevac or diversion? How close is the nearest place that can actually manage a forensic exam? And it becomes a a shared decision-making among, really among the captain, the company, and the medical advisory service and, and the person involved. Right. Yeah. And I think it all goes back to the decision to report too. Because I I think about being on board and this impacting you or you knowing of someone else that has experienced this and then not saying anything. And I'm like, it's, you know, that care is needed. And I think from the bystander perspective, if someone comes to me and is like, oh, please don't share this or this happened to me. I mean, that's, that's tough too. But I think it goes back to knowing that everyone's impact and fitness for duty more or less and mental state is impacting the safety of everyone else. So knowing that if you need to report it to get the help that's needed, that's important too, to keep passing the word because you don't want to be keeping that to yourself because that could impact other people's safety as much as the victim getting help. It's it's a really, it's really tough situation. Well, that's why you got to make it easy. I mean, you're absolutely right. The time to figure out what to do is not in the heat of the moment. You know, when you realize that, you know, your your health and well-being is in danger, you know, you don't need to be figuring out what to do. You need to say, oh my God, this is happening. I need help. This is where I go for help. It really is incum- incumbent upon each company to come up with appropriate policies and procedures and to educate crew and staff on them and then to abide by them. I can't stress that enough. It's We know that this is a problem. We don't really know the magnitude of the problem. It's not going away. We know that it affects the ability of everyone to function. We know it affects the safety of people to function. And, you know, it affects companies as well. You want to recruit and retain good staff. You want to make sure people are are fit to work at sea. So it's really in everybody's best interest to address this proactively and have a plan in place. Yeah. And you touched on the coordination of care between the medical advisory service, the captain and the shipping company. Like in regards to being fit for duty again, or just fit for duty in general, is there a way for seafarers on board to contact, say, the contracted medical provider directly if they wanted counseling while on board or medical advice on what to do separate from using the chain of command? Is that an option? Yeah, I mean, that again, that becomes kind of a one on one discussion and it varies by company. So, your contracted medical advisory service, the general definition is there it's to support the medical officer on board in providing care. And what you're talking about kind of goes outside of that. So, that's not to say there aren't resources. And that's not to say that the medical advisory service not, may not be the one providing the resources. But I think it's important to realize that that, that, is, that, is, a different, that is a different service. So, you know, whether the company provides access to, you know, a sexual assault hotline or a counseling service 
or you know some of the international helplines that are out there, a medical advisory service can also provide those resources. So I think a little bit of what you're getting at is the issue of confidentiality. What does the company need to know? What does the company not need to know? And there is a bright line. Well, there's, there's a line there. I don't know how bright it is, but there is a line there. So the company does have a right to know if there was an assault on their vessel. They do have a right to know of what medical care was rendered and what the recommendations are. But if it becomes, you know, beyond that, if there's an issue of somebody, you know, wants to be able to have a private non-documented conversation, that exists outside the traditional medical advisory service contract, but that doesn't mean there aren't resources out there for somebody. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's a good point. Because I'm just thinking of like thoughts that I've had previous to this conversation about just the private space to communicate or there's limited areas for private communication, especially while underway. You know, just knowing that, you know, typically the satellite phone is on the bridge or in the captain's office and it's really not even available. There needs to be a specific reason, which would make you go to the medical PIC or the captain. So, yeah, definitely confidentiality is. And I mean, you know, just the issue of communication at sea, it's like, you know, at least you're not using marine radios to communicate everything anymore. <laughs> but it is difficult. The issue of confidentiality of just any medical issue at sea is is really hard to maintain the best performance you want on that. So again, I think that comes down to a, a planning before it happens thing. If somebody wants, and it's not even sexual assault, if somebody wants counseling, what resources are available to them? We've talked a lot about now that you know, now that communication is so much better and, and video telemedicine is available, and even just with everything with COVID, how much counseling has moved to telemedicine, I do think that there is an opportunity there. I do think there's, we've done some of this. We actually did this in Alaska where we worked on getting ongoing telemedical consultations on board. It's tough because you end up having to do it on your own time. You may not have the breaks to do it. It's hard to schedule based on your shifts. So there are a lot of barriers to this, but it's not impossible. However, it does require thought beforehand on how you make this service available, how people access it, and how you do it in a confidential manner. Yeah. I guess the question to the Discovery Health MD staff, if they receive a call, because I've, I've heard of, you know, RAIN and other trained professionals that are standing by on, on call centers ready to help anyone who's calling in. What is your staff trained for in regards to like the first re- responder conversation? If someone were to call, say, a medical PIC, what would be some of your initial expectations that your staff would provide, maybe in regards to a sexual assault or not, but just some initial questions? Yeah, and you know, our I tend to lean towards the emergency medicine model of response at sea. Most of our physicians are emergency medicine physicians. It's how I was trained. It's how we're trained. So generally speaking, when we receive a, a call like that, our first question is going to be, you know, stabilizing airway, breathing, circulation, major trauma, and making that assessment of is there is there an emergent medical or traumatic issue that requires medevac or diversion. So th- that's really going to be our first question is I, I want a comprehensive medical assessment. The history is going to be very important. You know what, and when you give history, it's it's very objective. It's what people said, you know, don't, don't don't try to make a story here. Just be very objective that person said this happened at this time and this is what happened. We will probably have some very specific questions about exactly what happened and that's probably going to make some people very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I think it, if the med if the med pick is not comfortable, you know, talking in fairly graphic detail about what happened, they probably want to find somebody who is because there are very specific questions we have to ask and it makes everybody uncomfortable to ask them, but we do have to ask them. 
you know, that's the kind of situation where if the med pick was uncomfortable and the victim were uncomfortable, that we would speak directly to the victim to get the history. Again, it's something that will be reported to the company, but if they are not comfortable talking to the med pick in front of it, that would be a reason to talk directly to the person to get and document their history. Because there's a lot of that we're going to have to ask about, you know, if this is some, if this is a case where it doesn't get medevaced or diverted, it's something that gets managed at sea, you know, we may be asking about sexually transmitted disease history and prevention. We may be recommending medications. We may be asking about pregnancy status. And, you know, those are things that can be pretty personal for people. Definitely. Yeah, it's hard to talk about. So to shift gears, if someone was on a vessel that did not have a medical advisory service available, what would you recommend then? The current status, if somebody's on a vessel without medical advisory, the captain or the whoever the medical person in charge is will generally use their references to make their decision. And then usually they end up speaking with the Coast Guard, I think, if there's any question. Some people will call if they have a physician on shore, their own personal physician, you know, people will do that as well, but they end up using whatever resources available to them. So I obviously think best practice is having a con- contracted medical advisory service, but I also right. realize that's not, you know, a hundred percent. So in that case, I would say to use all the resources available to you. Some people will call shoreside medical care. They will call a shoreside clinic. The clinics don't really like that because it's a liability that they've not really accepted, but in some cases that still does happen. So I think if you don't know what to do, it's always good to phone a friend and find out. And that friend may be the Coast Guard. It may be a doc you know. It may be the Shoreside Clinic. But I, again, really recommend that you you invest in a medical advisory service. I think that that peace of mind is very helpful to have. Yeah, that's really good advice. I've thought too about this of even just as much as you're packing your sea bag to go to sea, you know, having your list of, of resources to know whether it's saved in your phone or like a printed sheet of hotlines available so that if you are in port and you have a question, you can phone and and get advice even on your own. I know of some mariners as well who have decided to take satellite phones out there with them and, and other things to allow the ease of communication. So yeah, that's really good. I think that's a great idea. I think yeah. that's really good. But again, it speaks to being prepared. Right. And the peace of mind that comes with being prepared. So I do think that's a really good suggestion. Well, Dr. Jaris, is there anything else you think seafarers should know regarding follow-up care for victims who are sexually assaulted or harassed at sea? You know, again, it's something that I want. I would like to see the stigma around removed because, again, as you well know, it's a very male-dominated industry. People are uncomfortable talking about this. You know, people are tired. We've been through a lot this year. So let's just make it easy for people to have the conversation. Let's make it easy to have awareness and let's have a zero tolerance for that kind of behavior. You know, you you are part of the culture on board and you have helped set that culture. So if we have a zero tolerance policy against assault and harassment, and we really live that, it really makes everybody's life better. Right. And even starting from the, like the spectrum, the spectrum of harm and looking at the small things that we should be maybe stopping earlier on to prevent things from escalating. And so much of that is awareness. Mm -hmm. So much of that is, you know, when something doesn't feel right, there's a reason it doesn't feel right. And you may not have the words to articulate it. So I think the more education and awareness that people have, the more people can step in earlier before something escalates. Well, thank you so much. I know the trauma-informed awareness is really important too. I know I don't know enough about it. I'm really thankful for your your insight and guidance today and talking with us about this. How can our audience learn more about Discovery Health MD and is there anything that we could do to support your mission? 
Well, thank you. And first of all, I'll say this is a tough topic for me and for my colleagues as well. This is not easy. Like I said earlier, the standard of care onshore isn't necessarily something for us to strive for. We can we can do better in all facets on our response to sexual assault and harassment. So we're all learning. But yes, if you are interested in reaching out to us, our website, discoveryhealthmd.com. It's currently all things COVID. We're in the thick of COVID <laughs> testing and vaccination, but we hope soon to get that back to really focusing on the commercial maritime industry. So you have to scroll down past all the COVID stuff to find our CDOC 24-7 Maritime Medical Advisory Service, our Fitness for Duty Services, Medical Chest Controlled Substances. But please take a look at our website and reach out to us. Great. Thank you. Are you on social media at all? We do have a Facebook page. We have a LinkedIn page, Discovery Health MD. I'm told that we're on Instagram, but I don't manage that. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jarris. Really, really appreciate your time today. And I know I've learned so much and I know the audience has too. So thanks again for your time today. Yeah. Thank you for taking this on. I really do appreciate your commitment to making the maritime industry a better place. Before we end this show, we wanted to say that if you have been a victim or a witness to sexual assault or sexual harassment, you are not alone and can take action today. We encourage you to report such matters to your employer, academy, school, or union as per their guidelines. For example, this may be your HR partner, captain, or designated person ashore. It can be hard to speak up. But it is a necessary step in seeking help and breaking the cycle of sexual assault and sexual harassment. Additionally, if you learned from the show and want to propel women offshore forward, please consider making a donation today. You can donate and even set up a monthly recurring gift at womenoffshore.org/donation. Until next time, stay safe out there and we'll talk to you soon.